Welcome to The Sustainable Life. This is Josh Spodek. I'm here with AJ Jacobs. AJ, how are you doing? I am good. Excited to talk to you, Josh. Glad to have you here. And it's funny because regular listeners will have heard a couple episodes ago, I was talking to Mike Michalowicz and telling him about my, at that time, just about two months living off the grid in Manhattan. And he's like, Josh, you got to get the story out. And you know who you have to talk to? AJ Jacobs. Because he did this year of living biblically. And if anyone knows about living in other ways, uh, you got to talk to him. And then now we've talked a couple of times since then. Yeah. And I love it. I think we're, uh, we're kindred spirits in uh, life experimentation. Yeah. In a way that's like, I'm, I'm going to read a bit from your bio. And I think people are going to hear, how do we put it? Some people, there are some people who do things for 30 days, some things who try to start habits, and some people who really go into it. <laughs> and with passion and, um, well, let's see what, what it is. So, okay. So here's the bio. AJ Jacobs is an author, journalist, lecturer, and human guinea pig. He's written four New York Times bestsellers that combine memoir, science, humor, and a dash of self-help. Sounds accurate. Uh, let's see. Editor at Esquire, commentator at NPR, columnist for Mental Floss Magazine, uh, currently helping build the, the family tree of the entire world, holding the biggest family re reunion ever in 2015. All right, so the books, The Know-It-All, One Man's Humble Quest to Become the Smartest Person in the World, the memoir which spent two months on the New York Times bestseller list chronicles the 18 months you spent reading the entire Encyclopedia Britannica in a quest to learn everything in the world, praised by Time Magazine, Newsweek, Vanity Fair, USA Today, New York Times, and your Uncle Henry. <laughs> yeah, he was a big fan, Uncle Henry. And I heard, I was watching one of your videos where it's like, it was very difficult for you not to spout things. And I think the wife wasn't so happy about that or. Yeah, that was the problem. I had so much information in my brain that it would just come out uh, spontaneously. And my wife started to penalize me $1 <laughs> for every irrelevant fact I inserted into conversation. So it was, it was a dangerous experiment. Do, uh, kid, do you remember how many dollars you lost or you spent? <laughs> uh, it was several hundred. It was yeah. several hundred. Yeah. Wait, so. Did you ever think Oh my God, this is worth a dollar. I, I'm going to say this. Exactly. Yeah. I mean, I was sometimes I was like, you know what? She really needs to know that opossums have 13 nipples or whatever <laughs> it was. Uh, but uh, yeah, I mean, it was it was wonderful and terrible at the same time. And and I've forgotten 99.9% .9 of it. But there are uh, there are parts that I still remember a ton of irrelevant facts, but I also took away some wisdom from the whole experience. And, uh, and a lot of it had to do with gratitude. So that was, uh, and I'm grateful for what I have. And uh, so that was, and that has been a running theme throughout all my books. Yeah. The, okay. So let's take the next one of, we say gratitude, but um, that's close to, is it close of your next book, The Year of Living Biblically, One Man's Humble, Humble Quest to Follow the Bible as Literally as Possible, it tells his attempt to follow the hundreds of rules in the good book, three months three months on the New York Times bestseller list, plays, praised by Publishers Weekly, Kirkus, New York Times Book Review, wow, LA Times, USA Today. That's true. And featured in Penthouse. I had forgotten about that. Proud to be a uniter, not a divider. Yes, that was the... Um... That was because I grew up with very little religion, but I was interested in it. So I decided to try to learn it from the inside. So I compiled a list of every rule in the Bible uh, and the famous ones like the Ten Commandments. But also there are hundreds of rules, especially in the Old Testament, that people don't pay attention to 
uh, like don't shave the corners of your beard. And I didn't know where the corners were. So I just let the whole thing grow. And I looked like Gandalf. Uh, and, uh, and the Bible says that you cannot wear clothes made of this two different kinds of fabric. So I had to get rid of all of my poly cotton sweaters. Uh, and there were just hundreds of them that I wanted to follow. And it changed my life in every way you can imagine. Some for the better and some for uh, the crazier. Uh, so I went through the year and tried to take away what did make my life better and then uh, sort of uh, abandon what made my life uh, too crazy. Anyone who wants to see the videos, there's videos of him online with the beard on the subway <laughs> with, the, with the garb. It, did, did you have to wear that gown type thing or was that optional? Well, there is a rule in Ecclesiastes that says that you should always wear white garments. Huh. And uh, there, it's probably metaphorical that you should just, you know, try to be pure and clean like you are. Uh, you wear metaphorical white garments, I feel. But I decided, you know, it could be literal, so I might as well wear white. So I got a, a white robe and really got into it. Weirdly, I will say wearing white actually had an, an impact on me. One of the themes of my books is how much your behavior affects your thoughts and your emotions. Mm -hmm. And so the fact that I was wearing white made me feel a little lighter, a little more pure. So uh, it was actually a very interesting part of the experiment. Well, maybe I should change because I stopped getting white because my wearing white had a way of making spaghetti sauce come toward me. And it <laughs> Yeah, it definitely, just, it gets less wasn't white working. over over the months, but th there are advantages. Uh, uh, and there is a history of people wearing only white, Tom Wolfe and Emily Dickinson. Uh, so it is a, it's a fascinating little, that's what I loved about that project. So many unexpected little twists. Uh, you know. Last time we spoke, or maybe two times ago, you said that uh, there's a social element of it, of people who say that they're following it literally, and you had a chance to, now you could say something to them that you couldn't have otherwise. Right. Of your being. Yeah, yeah. So there was, it was, I had two motivations for that book, and they were almost opposing. The first was to find out what in the Bible might make my life better. What was I missing by having no religion? Is there anything I can take from religion to make my life better? But the second motivation was to try to expose fundamentalists who claimed that they were following the Bible literally because they would say, ah, oh, you know, there are millions of people who say homosexuality is a sin because it's right there in the Bible. And I take the Bible literally. But my sense was that they cherry picked from the Bible. So they followed some things, but not everything. So I wanted to just take that and show, well, this is actually what it looks like to follow the Bible as literally as possible. You know, you can't shave. You can't, you're going to be throwing stones at adulterers, uh, and which I did. I used very small stones, so I didn't get in trouble. Uh, <laughs> and you can't let your, uh, your daughter or, or wife speak in church because that's in the Bible. So I wanted to show that, you know, don't take it literally. Everyone cherry picks, and it's okay to cherry pick from the Bible, but why don't you cherry pick the parts about compassion and embracing others? And, uh, and even there's some environmental stuff, you could argue. There's stewardship of the earth, trying to be a good steward. So, uh, yeah, that was my point. Cherry pick the good cherries, not the sour cherries.
And then the next one is my life is an experiment. One man's humble quest to improve himself. More humble, more humility. <laughs> yeah, I'm, the, I'm the humblest man in the world, as I like to say. Uh, <laughs> yeah, that one was a collection of pieces. So that one was everything from an experiment uh, I did where I was radically honest for several months, where I tried to, uh, this is a philosophy that says you should never lie but it goes further. It says whatever's on your brain should come out of your mouth. Uh, there should be no funnel. So I tried that. And that was, in many ways, the most horrible couple of months of my life. Because as you can imagine, there is a reason we have a filter in our brain. Uh, and, you know, the saying your wife looks fat in the dress is not always going to lead to. Uh, but I will say there was an upside to that, because I still believe in radical positive honesty i think we are definitely we are not pop it, you know it, for instance if i'm thinking of my mentor i'm now much more likely to call him out of the blue and just say i was thinking about you thank you for the amazing impact you had on my life so radical honesty doesn't always have to be brutal honesty it sometimes is uh, but it can also be positive honesty. And that's the kind that I like to embrace. You don't have to do it the way other people say you have to do it. You can do it however you want. That's right. Yes. I mean, the, for the experiment, I had to do it the way this psychologist had suggested, Brad Blanton, because uh, he, uh, I was just testing out his theory. But yes, you can adapt it to however you want. When you told me about it, I was not going to ask you if you did it, if you like, if it, if it messed anything up with relationships. But then you mentioned the thing about the wife in the dress. Oh yeah, no, it was not. Good. And now, what, how did did that happen? How did it go? Well, that was yeah, that was not. I actually don't think I ever said that, but there were many awkward moments. Like for instance, my wife and I went out to a restaurant and we saw some friends of hers that we hadn't seen in she hadn't seen since high school. And they were like, oh, this is so great. We should hang out. We should have a play date with our kids. And I had to say what was on my mind, which was, you seem nice, but I really have no interest in hanging out with you because <laughs> I don't get to have enough time to see my other friends and I have hobbies. And, and that was just horrible. My wife was understandably furious they were insulted. I felt like a total ass. Uh, so yeah, that's an example of where I don't think you need to have total honesty. But I will say, we never did see them again. So it was it was effective. <laughs> uh, and and you get a story out of it. I don't know if that's uh, if a net result was positive, worked out in your favor. I'm also curious about the there seems to be a level of interest. I mean, you say human guinea pig, but I think I read a curiosity or a desire to learn to suck the marrow out of life. Or what, is there something that's driving these things? Or is it just you want to sell a lot of books? Now, it can't be a lot of books because, I mean, sure, you're selling them because it's genuine and authentic, but it feels like, um, is there something missing that you're trying to fill in an empty hole? Or is it something that's fun? And is there something driving it all? Or have you thought about that? Yeah, yeah, a lot. There's several things. First of all, I, a lot, all of them have an element of self-improvement. How can I make my life better? And I do think I need a lot of self-improvement. I'm a fixer-upper. I'm a very flawed human being like, like most of us. Uh, so that's an element. And I do think my hope is to take the reader along so that they can get the 
without having to live by the Bible, they can get the wisdom and they can change their lives in, in smaller ways, but still make them better. Then the other uh, idea you mentioned is curiosity, which is huge. And I think you and I share this unquenchable curiosity. It, for me, the two best drives that humans have are gratitude and curiosity. And I just love, uh, I once interviewed the late, great Alex Trebek uh, for the host of Jeopardy uh, for a magazine. And he told me a quote that I still remember and love, which is, he said, I'm curious about everything, even things that don't interest me, which is a little paradoxical, but I totally understand it. I think whatever the topic is, if you scratch it on a little, you're going to find fascinating things. So I try to cultivate my curiosity. And even my latest book had a little motto called Don't Get Furious, Get Curious. And I believe that. I believe that when we're facing huge problems like we have in the world, including um, perhaps primarily climate change, it can, it's tempting for me to get so angry that I'm paralyzed and I can't come up with good solutions. And so instead of being angry, I try to be curious and treat it almost like a puzzle. How, how can I solve this? How can I help? And you, of course, have done more than 99.9% .9 of us uh, in this. And uh, I imagine that for you, curiosity is also a driving factor. It is, and maybe 99% of Americans, but not 99% of people who have ever lived. Americans are, because people always call me extreme, and it annoys me because I think that they're trying to, by saying I'm extreme, they're disqualifying themselves from trying. Mm. All right, I won't call you extreme. You're very middle of the road. <laughs> <laughs> well, traditional. I mean, right. we didn't have a power grid for a long time. We humans. Mm. I mean, it's less than 100 years old. The, yeah, and curiosity is, there's curiosity. Yours, when you tell your stories, there's also humor. And I don't think my mm. writing is particularly funny. I think I can be funny in person. And I think people think of me as humorous. But I get much more serious because I, I, mm. I feel like I'm trying to lead. And I feel like humor makes you, not you, but one, makes people accessible. I guess I read some Malcolm Gladwell piece. I think it was Malcolm Gladwell. And he, he wrote that, Mm. Comedians can talk about anything, but the 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 plus is they can say things that most of us can't. Right, and and we love that. The downside is that apparently they don't influence people. That is interesting. Yeah. Well, I think it all depends. It definitely depends, and there are advantages and disadvantages to both approaches. I like it because I do think that people hopefully they want to read my book partly because it's entertaining and but you also get the message so it's like um uh, you know whatever it is you get the uh cotton candy and you also get the broccoli and uh but i will say i'm just trying to think of some examples of people who were uh well i will say it can be a very powerful weapon i am i am not a republican but i do remember that ronald reagan used humor really effectively like if someone attacks you uh humor can be very effective because i remember some during the debates there was a, you know someone attacked him about being too old and he he turned it around on them and he's like yeah people 
have brought up the age problem, but I don't, uh, I'm not going to say that you're too young for this. So he's turned it on its head and said, uh, you know, made it a joke about the other person being too young. And that was very effective. I'm going to share. It's not a joke that he made, but it's about Reagan. Apparently, I learned this from a, a, the postdoc on the grad and when I was in grad school on the experiment I worked on. Apparently, one time he was being grilled on some tough stuff mm. uh, during a, a press conference. They took a break. He thought the microphone was off, and into the microphone he goes, <laughs> "Son of a bitch!" No, no, he said, uh, um, "Yeah, son of a bitch." And all the press people were like, excuse me, Mr. President, Mr. President, what, what did you say? Could you repeat that, please? And an aide steps from behind him, goes up to the mic and said, the president said, it's sunny and you're rich. <laughs> totally true. I'm sure. That is, uh, I was actually just reading about the Dan Quayle potato incident. And uh, yeah, was, the spelling. And he famously, for those who are younger, he famously went to a school and was asked to spell potato and he wrote it on the board and he wrote it wrong. And it was a huge, you know, it never, he never got over that. But I will say, I'm not a Dan Quayle fan, but I do think uh, it's illust stories are always more complicated than they seem. And in this case, mm -hmm. the teacher had given him a little paper with the wrong spelling of potato. And he just copied it from oh, the teacher. Huh. So... Maybe he should have corrected the teacher, but if you're going to get a little slot and piece from an English teacher, and I would have probably been like, okay, I guess I spell it wrong. So to me, I thought that was a really interesting case of the media. And we like simple stories of villains and, and, uh, and heroes, but it's rarely that simple. Yeah, I learned in, in, I mean, I took a lot of math classes and physics classes in college and grad school. And whenever you get called it to the board, I've learned that your IQ drops 50 <laughs> points when you're at the board. That is very strong. Yes. Nothing you can do about it. I think we talked about this because I had recently heard about the best chalk in the world that mathematicians still love. Yeah. And uh, it's like, oh, yes. you know, the, the Tiffany's, the Cadillac of chalk. And I love that. I love when there's little corners of the world, like we were talking about curiosity. Have you done things on the environment so far? Have you, is that something you've changed your life about or experimented with? You know, not really. Uh, I mean, when I was, I did a, a, a book on being the healthiest person alive uh, or trying to. And of course, food was a big part of that. And, and luckily, Eating healthy usually aligns with being better for the environment because you're eating a plant-based diet, which is better for the environment, and it's real food instead of food that can, you know, rot and instead of highly... Here we say doof. Oh, right, doof. I love your TED Talk about that. Yeah. Yeah. So doof is bad for the environment and food is good, which is nice that it lined up that way. It couldn't have to. Uh, so I guess that was an overlap. But I haven't, I haven't done what you've done, whereas living off the grid in Manhattan, which I think is a fascinating experiment. Oh, yeah. I mean, it's almost a decade in only by doing it. I think I, was, I don't know if you got a chance to look in that document mm -hmm. I sent, that really long one. But only by doing this did I 
could I look back and see that starting from my avoiding packaged food that I had this, actually I'm working with this giant oil company, one of the major big, most polluting companies in the world. And for me to work with them to bring my sustainability leadership, they have to make sure that my leadership program matches their model. Interesting. And their model has something in it of something very standard in business of adopt a learner mindset followed by a process of continual improvement. I love it. So this is in a lot of things yeah. like Six Sigma does that and you know lots of places do that. And only when I did that did I realize I had that change in mindset that happened with the avoiding packaged food. And then I've just been on a path of continual improvement ever since that each thing I do leads me to the next thing. There's no way at the beginning I could have thought, I would, if someone said, here's all the things you should do, I would yeah. not do any of them. Right. I wouldn't believe that I could. Yeah, yeah, and I like that. I mean, I talk a lot about micro goals and how it's often much better. Like, like if I want to inspire myself to work out, uh, I won't say, okay, now it's time to work out. I'll just say, all right, now it's time to put on your sneakers. And once I get my sneakers on, then I say, you know, okay, now I... I'm going to get on the treadmill. I'm not going to promise myself that I'm going to do anything more than get on. But once I'm on, I'm like, okay, I'll turn it on for a couple of minutes. But those micro goals to me are very effective. And by the way, I thought of one other example of um, how my work overlapped with the environment, which was uh, I wrote a book called Thanks a Thousand, where I went, uh, I thanked, tried to thank a thousand people who had anything to do with my morning cup of coffee, however small. Uh, so I thanked the barista. Uh, I thanked the farmer in Colombia. I thanked the, the logo designer. So it was sort of to show that we take so much for granted. But since I was thanking everyone, I had this dilemma because I had to thank ExxonMobil because they did provide the gas that powered the ship that brought the coffee beans to my cafe. But of course, I have huge moral issues with ExxonMobil. Mm -hmm. So I decided, um, I wrote the CEO of Mobile Exxon a thank you note, but it was the most passive aggressive thank you note in the history of thank you notes, because I said, thank you for playing a small part in bringing my morning cup of coffee to me. I love coffee. I hope that it will still be around in a few decades. And if you continue with your fossil fuels, that may not happen. So I hope that you will consider investing more in alternative energies. Uh, thanks again, uh, AJ Jacobs. So, so I never got a response. But that was uh, an interesting uh, overlap between environmentalism and gratitude, because it really is, it was a moral quandary for me. Let's see if we can't get some something going different. Up for the Spodic method? Oh yeah, sure, let's try it. Is the environment something that matters to you enough to act? Yes, yes it is. When you're motivated to act, what when you think about the environment, what do you think about? And uh, I don't mean what you read in the paper, of, you know, it's all falling apart or what happens at one degree or two degrees or something like that. But picture yourself in nature at some time in your life when you've been surrounded by it. What's the context? What What's nature for you hmm. uh, when you're in it? Well, I, uh, I live in New York City like you do. And so I do walk in Central Park a couple of times a week. And, and I will say when I did the book on health, 
there are studies about how being in nature makes you feel better and and might even help with your immune system. I don't know if I totally buy it, but it certainly is good for the the mood. So uh, yeah, I am a fan. Uh, I still could never live in a, a rural area. I couldn't. I need the city. Uh, there is something about the vibrancy of New York, but I like having my little rural area right next to me uh, in the shape of Central Park. Did you grow up at Central Park? I did. I grew up a couple of blocks from Central Park, but I grew up in the seven. I was I was born in 1968, and in the 70s, Central Park was, you know, considered dangerous. Don't go there, especially at night. So I, I mean, I love now that it is not uh, the, the treacherous area that it was when I was a kid. I'm very grateful for that. Simon and Garfunkel saved it. Is that who did it? All right. Well, thank you, Simon. Well, no, I mean, there's the concert in Central Park that they did. Right. Yeah, I remember that. So you grew up with Central Park and you've seen it change. I mean, when, when you're in it, like, I mean, there's a lot to it. There's the south. I mean, there's the paths that are the road. There's the bridal path. There's the bramble. There's lakes. And is there anything that, that comes to mind in particular? Are there any specific moments that resonate? Uh, well, just this last weekend, I had a picnic in the park. And it is awesome. I mean, it is. And we had great conversation. Uh, I don't know if it was the park that spurred it, but it was it was lovely. And actually, just a couple of weeks ago, I did an event at Greenwood Cemetery in Brooklyn, uh, which is, I don't, have you ever been there? Yeah, I once in college took, with a friend, we took the subway to a cemetery and then walked across the cemetery to a different subway yeah. and came home. Well, it's fascinating because- I don't know if it's Greenwood. It's historic. It's been around for, and it's got famous, lots of famous people are buried there like Leonard Bernstein and it's- and it's gorgeous. And before Central Park, this was people use cemeteries as their park. This was their way to get to nature. So people would have picnics in the cemetery. It wasn't considered spooky. Now, I will say it made me think that I actually don't want to be buried in a cemetery. And if it were up to me, I think that we would stop making cemeteries because I think it's a bad use of land. I think it's a non-environmentally friendly use of land. Let's use that land either as a nature preserve or let's use it for you know, low-income housing or something. But it seems like a very strange... Uh, I wonder in 200 years whether we'll look back and be like, well, that was weird, just burying people six feet under uh, instead of... Uh, cremating them or, or whatever. I guess putting them in a mushroom suit is the most environment. What's your take on uh, on cemeteries and, and what we should do when people die? Well, I, I mean, I kind of want to be dumped in the ocean and let the sharks get me. Uh -huh. I haven't thought too much past that of what other people should do. Well, that is good because that's from an energy standpoint, you are saving energy because you're giving them food that they might otherwise, yeah. They might have. I'd like to think I'd be delicious as well. <laughs> you look delicious. <laughs> <laughs> when you're in Central Park in or a nature preserve, what is, what's the emotional experience for you? What's it like being in nature? Uh, 
I would say I am, I grew up in the city, so I didn't grow up. Uh, I think I'm not as good in nature as some other people like camping. Uh, I think I get very um, annoyed by the insects. So I don't think I'm like a nature's child born to be wild. Mm -hmm. But I do see the importance of nature. For me, I will say it's more of an intellectual than an emotional. And, and I think I'm in the minority on that. I think a lot of people love nature. But to me, nature is so important so that we can keep the human species and other species alive. Like, I don't think that, you know, I don't think that trees are sentient. I'm open to it. I'm open to this, you know, panpsychism is quite popular now in, in philosophy and that maybe plants do have consciousness. Uh, I'm not convinced. So I would say there's a low probability of that. So for me, I more prioritize sentient beings. So whether that's animals or people or perhaps AI, we don't know yet. Uh, uh, that's what I care about most. And nature, I think, helps sentient beings. But nature in itself does not do a lot for me as like just an intrinsic good. Like I, I don't, it doesn't. I never think, oh, it would be a better world if we got rid of all the people so nature could flourish. Well, you're asking a slightly different question about what nature, what value it has. Mm -hmm. I'm just asking, I mean, you talked about this picnic and I saw you had a tone of voice or uh, going across the cemetery. It seemed like there was some emotional value. There, there was something, I mean, I don't want to guess at what emotions you felt. And you said, well, I don't feel as much as others. Mine is more intellectual. Well, okay. Mine, I'm not asking you to compare to others. And they might feel a certain way, but that's their thing. Yeah. What about your own personal experience, independent of what anybody else's is? Well, I think, yeah. I think that uh, it gives me happiness. And as we talked about there, you know, there are studies that say it'll, being in nature is, is good for your mental health. And I feel that I do feel that uh, in in doses, I'm not as good. I like I wouldn't spend months in nature. But uh, but this picnic, I would say it's the same. I think that it reminds me of like these trees have been around for hundreds of years. And I like thinking a lot about long termism and longevity. So being in nature and seeing rocks that were created, you know, probably billions of years ago, millions of years ago, certainly, that to me is pretty profound. I heard happy, profound, profound. So profound means to me deep, deep what? Deep appreciation or wonder or? Yeah, deep, yeah, wonder and awe. I love, I guess if I were, I mentioned curiosity and Gratitude as two of my favorite emotions. I'm going to add awe uh, and wonder because I do, I love those. And to me, I get that sometimes from nature, uh, sometimes from, certainly from looking at stars and just being awed at how huge the universe is. So I guess that is a type of nature. And I love thinking about, I will say, I talk in my current book about the sense of awe that you get from thinking about big numbers uh, because our brains are not built to think of big numbers. But 
big numbers are important. As we saw during the during COVID, you know, the fact that we couldn't see how fast something could spread, we couldn't envision an exponential process. That had a lot to do with why we just we were late in understanding how big this was. And you, as a physicist, I mean, you must deal with big numbers all the time. Do you agree with me that big numbers are awe-inspiring? Well, there's, yeah, you also, exponential growth is not just numbers, but the rate of change of numbers. Mm -hmm. And no one can get exponentials. It's just, they just fool us every time. Exactly. And I, I was even made a little note to say, I think of big numbers all the time, like seven, eight, nine. <laughs> uh, yeah, I mean, sometimes we, I mean, we have exponential notation to like a seven times 10 to the 23rd or something like that. And it's funny that I'd pick seven and then go 10 to the 23rd, like get Avogadro's number and not do 6.022 or whatever it is. Um, so this awe, this wonder, this happiness, be it from Central Park, from looking at the sky, based on those feelings, those emotions, I invite you to think of something you can do, if you want to, to act on those emotions. And I want to clarify, I'm not saying something to do to fix the environment. Everyone wants to like, oh, I'm supposed to do X. It's not about fixing the environment. It may have some impact, but that's not the point. It's to manifest those emotions in some way, to bring them about in a way that you weren't otherwise going to do. So if you go for it with three constraints, the constraints are something you're not already doing. Mm -hmm something that you do with your own hands. Mm. So no getting other people to do it for you. <laughs> okay. You can do it with others, but you have to be part of it. Mm -hmm. And something that has a physical component so that if you look at what you've done afterward, you can say, you know, I left the world in some non-zero way better than I found it. You don't have to measure it. Mm. And big or small, long, short, that's up to you. But if you're up for it, then, and most people at this stage are like, hmm, that's interesting. I can't really think of anything. And it, it always takes a bit of back and forth. I mean, rarely someone says, oh, I know what to do. Right. And after we go back and forth a few times, almost everyone's like, oh, you know, I was meeting to do that for a while. Like they can't think of it. And suddenly they think of it. <laughs> Want to give it a shot? Sure. Well, I will tell you something that I did recently do that I found uh, as, because my most recent book was about puzzles. And I decided as part of it, uh, I would make the hardest puzzle in the world, by which I mean the most time-consuming puzzle in the world. And actually, you can see it in the, the corner of my room. It's a wooden puzzle mm -hmm. that's about four feet high, and it's got 55 pegs. And the, to solve the puzzle, you have to turn the pegs in a certain order and remove a steel rod from the middle of the puzzle. But to do it, you have to turn the pegs a lot of time. And I mean a lot of time. 1.2 decillion times. So that's one with 30 <laughs> digits after it. And part of my motivation for making this, I made it with a Dutch puzzle designer who is brilliant. But our, our goal was it, it's part of a genre called generation puzzles. Puzzles that are so hard that you can't do them in one generation. You have to hand them off to your kids who then hand them off to their kids. This one is so long that it will outlast the universe. If you turn one peg per second, it still won't be solved by the time the universe ends. But a lot of it was a physical reminder of the future and this idea that we have to think of our descendants. And you know, the I love 
the Native American concept of seven generations uh, and that we have to think of seven generations. And this is more like 7D generate or 700 or 700,000 generations. So that was, uh, that was one of the things I did with my hands to remind me to be a good ancestor, to be someone who tries to give uh, my kids and, and 18th great grandkids an earth that they can live on. So that was that was my most recent that sort of falls into your, but I'll, I'll try to come up with a new one as well if you want. Yeah, and that, there's a bit of helping others, which is nice, but not necessary here. Mm. In fact, I don't, I discourage you from trying to look in that direction of how I can fix the world. Mm. It's more about how you can feel awe and wonder mm. or happiness or these things in nature. Ah, interesting. Your own personal experience. I'm removing from you from this challenge, from this, from this invitation, helping the world. If you want to do that in your own time, right. great. All right. Well, here, this is a bizarre one. But for me, as I say, the size, what inspires awe in me a lot is the, just the size of the future, how, and how much, if, if humans survive, if we are able to survive the climate and other pending disasters, how many billions, trillions of people are yet to come. Mm -hmm. So that to me is awe-inspiring. And also how big the universe is, just how many, that to me is just awe-inspiring. So I watched a great video on YouTube. It's on a science channel called Vsauce. And he was trying to explain how to conceptualize big numbers. And he said, one way to do it would be to try to imagine putting grains of sand in the Grand Canyon, and you put one grain of sand in, by the time you fill up the Grand Canyon, then you take a pebble and you put it on a field, and you empty out the Grand Canyon and start again with the sand. And by the time your pile of pebbles is the size of Mount Everest, uh, you still have not reached one decillion times. Uh, and I love that because I think it's a nice way to visualize big numbers. So what if I tried to actually do that, tried to start filling the Grand Canyon with sand so that I could just get this feeling of awe at how big the world is? Is that something you can do? Do you have a Grand Canyon around you? <laughs> <laughs> it's a good question. I was just, after I just visited the Grand Canyon, which is what made me think of it. Maybe I should do it at... Um, well, I'm near Central Park. Maybe I could move every day. I could go to the park and move like uh, a little bit of sand from one section to another and just see how long it'll take me. Let's see. So the next stage would be to make it a smart goal, specific, measurable, achievable, realistic, time bound. Mm. So that if you came back for a second conversation, if I asked you, how did it go? You could give me some idea. You know, you could answer it meaningfully. Right. Uh, that's a good question. Well, let me think of other ideas because I love coming up with ideas. Uh, okay. Well, how do you inspire awe? What's the way that you do it? For me, uh, I mean, awe isn't one of my, it, it is something that I enjoy and love. It's not one of the first things that come to mind though. So it's not, it's a little more distant for me. This is one of the things that's important about this exercise is to 
go with the actual the person I'm speaking to mm. and the, their personal experience. Mm, mm, mm. All right, let me think of other ways to inspire awe. But when you have felt awe, what has instigated it? Well, that's exactly what I ask people. Uh, I mean, certainly things about the universe, you know, the, the big scale of the universe, mm-hmm. the, and I guess it would go the other way too, the, when you get to really small and, oh, uh, let's see. I can't help but refer to Mel Brooks in uh, History of the World Part One. Yeah, of course. I don't know if you saw that. Do you remember the joke with the awe? No, I don't remember. The they joke. dealt with death. Yeah, they, he, there's a bunch of cavemen standing around, and it's all goofy because it's Mel Brooks. And the narrator is like, and they dealt with death with a great deal of awe. And then the people go, aw, <laughs> at the dead person. Yeah, that's interesting. Uh, all right, let me try to think of other ways to inspire awe. I mean, there is psychedelics, which I have considered doing that as a book, like trying to take every different type of psychedelic. Uh, But I have not, I have kids and I'm not sure I want to do that while they're still around. On the Upper West, there's the the Museum of Natural History, which has access to a lot of awe because it's got a planetarium. It's got shows about stuff about the history of the universe, as well as history of humanity and life. And it's always, I always feel like, ah, I've already seen it. And then I go and I'm like, oh, that's amazing. That's true. I am I am near that. That could be just one. That could be a thing. I make myself go to the planet, to the history museum every week and try to stay there until I feel a sense of awe. And it has to be at a different part of the museum every time. That would be fun and easily doable. One question, though, that occurs to me is, for you, does awe inspire positive action? Does awe inspire you to want to make the world better? It can if there's something impinging on it. Mm. If it feels threatened. I mean, this is what comes to mind. Right. I mean, it usually makes me pause and stop. So if I was going to, um, it's probably something like relaxation, but something slightly different than relaxation. Right. So if I was freaking out, awe would probably slow me down. Interesting. I, I mean, I'm disinclined to watch TV because I think that would be disappointing relative to pondering the, the universe. Right. Yeah. I'm trying to think of the link myself. I think that it does make me want to do things that will make the world better. And I'm trying to think. See, I'm, I'm, I'm releasing by that. I'm not sure if this is what you're getting at, but when people say, if it's not going to change the world, if it doesn't scale, it's not worth doing. Right. That I think is crippling people acting. Interesting. If you do something, what I find, and it may be different for you, it may be the same for you, it may be more, maybe less, I'm not sure. But what I find is when people act for their own intrinsic motivation, mm. then they find the other, th- they, it leads to other things in ways they couldn't have predicted. Mm. That's why I invite you back to come a second time because right. I predict that let, it, it looked like it would fit the bill if you went to the museum. I think you said once a week for a month or something like that. Yeah, yeah. If you did that, and it doesn't really have a physical component of changing anything. I mean, if you were doing that instead of something else that were more polluting, then that's true. A lot of people do that. Like they go for hikes instead of watching TV. Okay. Well, I certainly will walk to the museum and walk back. So that would be uh, non polluting. But I think, yeah, I think it's interesting. 
I also like what you said, because that speaks a lot to your own project where you are just one person, but you, you know, changing your life radically with no, you know, making no carbon footprint. Whereas, um, you know, I imagine other people be like, well, what about scaling it? And, uh, and you, so is your message sort of start with yourself and then it will go out from there? Uh, well, I want to distinguish me living by my values right. versus me leading others. Okay. What you and I are doing right now, I believe that I'm leading you. Mm. That's influencing your behavior, your thoughts, your, your beliefs. Right. Me living by my values is not leadership. That's, it's necessary, but not sufficient. Interesting. So what I do on my own, I mean, you're not murdering people, I hope. <laughs> and you're not doing that because you're trying to stop murderers. You just don't want to murder people. Right, right. I'm not, I don't want to equivocate. I'm, I'm, I'm trying to say that murder and pollution are the same thing. But we live by our values because I live by my values because I, it improves my life. Right. It also enables me to lead. If I didn't live by my, I think it's virtually impossible to lead someone to live by values that I behave the opposite of. Mm, right. Well, so it does open the door. I mean, how much do you think, though, if you just lived like this and led by example, like you were? I, I believe it would be completely ineffectual. Really? How so? There would be a few people who would see me as a role model. Yeah. But when people are addicted to something, as as I believe virtually everyone is to what fossil fuel, what pollution brings. Right. They have a way of looking and saying, oh, you can do it because you're special, oh, but I can't. Interesting. Or I'm special. Either I have special, either you, Josh, have special abilities that you can do some things that I can't. Right. Maybe you were born that way or something like that. Or they say, I have some, something that keeps me back from it. Interesting. So people have amazing protections to stop themselves from being led by example. I, I don't, leading by example may work in some areas, but not in the environment. Now where people are so wrapped up in, protecting themselves from facing. Right. Very interesting. These emotions like guilt, shame, helplessness, hopelessness, insecurity. Now, here's a good thought, because I think about this a lot in terms of guilt being a motivator for good action, because I think it can be very effective in the short term, like, you know, feeling guilty that you are able to eat, whereas there are people starving. But I also think that in the long term, there are better motivators, like the idea that, you know, showing people how much they can do and how much impact they can have and how they can be, you know, this, uh, an amazing force for good. To me, that, to me, at least, that's more motivating than guilt, because sometimes guilt is a turnoff. It's like, oh, I can't, I'm too guilty. I can't even think about it. I'm not going to do anything. What's your take on guilt versus other more empowering ideas as motivators? Let me ask you first, your time constraints. How are we doing? Oh, I do have to leave in about five minutes, unfortunately, for a visit. Then I propose starting off with that, me answering that. Okay. Next time. I like it. And so if I heard right, are you game to commit to going to the Natural History Museum what would it be? What would be a good amount over a good amount of time that if we scheduled a second conversation, you could share how it went? How about in two months, I'll go. So I'll go eight times. Okay. Are you a member, by the way? I am a member. I love it. Yeah. Oh, great. Uh, 
All right. Well, yeah. Oh, can you bring a guest? I'm, I might invite myself along with you at least one of these times. I would love it. Yeah, sure. Sure. We can. I, absolutely. Oh, great. Uh, all right. Well, we'll set up a meeting for that and then we'll do, we'll resume our talk. I would love it. Okay. Anything I didn't think to ask before wrapping up or anything you want to say to listeners between now? I mean, you'll get, you'll talk again soon, but anything you want to share? Yeah, no, well, we have plenty of time to think of what we missed, but, uh, you know, there's millions of things to talk about. Well, we'll pick up at least some of those millions, uh, some of those grains of sand <laughs> next time. AJ Jacobs, thank you very much. Thank you, Josh. How many people are bringing a message of joy from what everyone calls saving the environment, but I call the future? Step by step, this podcast is creating a culture of joy, community, and connection around sharing and acting on our environmental values. Again, there's no profit in buying and wasting less, but we'll all love our lives and relationships more when we do. I can use your support. Please donate at joshuaspodick.com slash donate. Again, that's joshuaspodick.com slash donate.